0: Hey y'all, how's it going? Welcome to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Hmm. Huh. Um. Yeah, man. Uh. Well, you know, I sent out a bunch of invites this morning. Um. And uh, I didn't hear back. But yesterday, I sent out an invite that I heard back. And he's going to be on. David Kattenberg. I told you about this story about Dennis Ross, and he went and saw the Dennis Ross speech that they wrote up at Mondo Weiss Hilarious. Unbelievable. Amazing. Incredible. I cannot wait to uh, give this guy Kattenberg a chance to tell his story. It's really something else, man. So you'll want to hear that. And then, uh, yeah, actually I did hear back from John Pfeffer. He can't do it, but maybe he'll do it tomorrow. He wrote a great piece that I think we're running today. At antiwar.com. Also tomorrow, Stephen Zunis will be on to talk about the horror of Hillary Clinton and Rachel Levinson Waldman is going to be on to talk about the legalization of the use of armed drones by police against American citizens. <sighs> Anyway, so that should be fun. And then I'm trying to get this guy, what's his name? Something about guns. I wanted to interview him about Obama's executive order. I already told you everything you need to know, but then I thought, you know what? I'm not a lawyer, and I don't know that much about the gun issue. You know, I'm moderately informed. Um, I mean, I think the real problem is obvious. They're criminalizing people for behavior, which is not criminal. They're taking entire segments of the population who engage in certain kinds of gun trade and making them criminals when they're not criminals. And the only way to enforce it, of course, is to send in the undercover cops to entrap people into selling guns without stopping by uh, the FBI and doing a background check first and this and that. It's a nightmare. It's insane. And you shouldn't have to be a lawyer to figure that out. Well, let's see. The government says they're gonna do something. Let's just stop for a moment and think about how this is supposed to work in the real world when they implement their great idea they describe. Yeah, what we're gonna do, we're gonna close the gun show loophole. Uh-huh. And what's that gonna look like in reality? It's gonna look like undercover cops and trapping innocent people and destroying their lives. That's what it's gonna look like. And anyway. Uh, but I want to get this lawyer on to talk about it because maybe he's got a bunch of other stuff to say. Hey, maybe he'll argue with me and say, no, nah, you're missing the point. It's something else entirely. I don't know. But I want to interview somebody uh, about that, and i got to invite out. And then um, uh, Adam Moro, Remember Adam Morrow, uh, our friend, the reporter, uh, formerly from IPS News who lives in Cairo, Egypt? I tried to call him, and I got a message from a very nice, sounding lady in Arabic saying, do 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 da 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 do and do do and, yeah, you got the wrong number, pal, I think, is what she said. And so, I tried again, and the same thing. So I sent him an email. I guess we'll see, but I sure would like to hear from Adam Morrow. We can talk about five years of the Arab Spring, and three and a half years since its cancellation in the great state of Egypt. It's Part of the United States of America. Face it. Anyway, they live under a uh, totalitarian military dictatorship there because USA. Um, But, hey, at least as recently as a few months ago, he could still talk on the phone. I kind of worry about that, you know? I remember back when Mubarak was in, there was a young lady that I interviewed. And then when I posted up on the website, she emailed me and said, Ooh, you know... I think I'm having second thoughts. I'm afraid of what Mubarak's men might do to me. Can you please take that down? And, and I did, of course. Um, you know, that's the way it is. It's because America is an evil empire that supports military dictatorships around the world. That's the way it is in Egypt. Who knows how it might be? Maybe the Saudis and the Israelis would do a good enough job of supporting military dictatorship without us, but I kind of doubt it. It's the money they take out of your paycheck that makes it all possible, that made Mubarak possible, that makes Al-Sisi, the dictator now, possible. Oh, it's Sisi. I shouldn't make fun of his name, but... Margulay's like, oh, yes, Field Marshal Cece. That means he sat on his ass at a desk his entire life. Field Marshal. Get the hell out of here. Perfumed Prince boy. No, anyway. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, and then, uh, also I'm working on getting somebody on to talk about the new nukes. I guess you can hardly get anybody motivated to even care about this. To, to successfully rally the population hard enough to somehow get them to really make a difference to oppose the new nuke plan with enough force that they're actually able to stop it. It would take a miracle, right? It would take all of the most famous singers in America and rappers from all genres to all on the same day say like, Hey, everyone call your congressman. <laughs> no more nicks. If you ever loved the whatever pop group, then you better call right now. Um, all right know. get, get Trump. On the on the anti-nuke bandwagon. And then have him tell everybody else to. That might work. Otherwise, I think it's basically a done deal. That they say they're going to spend a trillion, which means in reality, what? Three? Five? Revamping the entire American nuclear weapons arsenal. Which includes 7,000-something bombs, as it is. The whole point, of course, is to make them more usable. It's to end the balance of terror in mutually assured destruction and replace it with a first strike capability. Um, and a first strike capability means in the mind of American war planners, they could launch a first strike nuclear attack against Russia and with and accepting minimal casualties on our side Me, you know not meaning they'd be able to take out every last russian nuke before it's able to be launched i mean they got submarines and everything else um the uh but you know acceptable casualties like yeah maybe we'll lose denver and maybe we'll lose new york maybe we'll lose austin texas maybe we'll lose miami and and uh, portland and los angeles but most of america will still be alive that's a first strike capability. And, of course, as uh, is he still around, is Klaus still comment? There's a guy named Klaus uh, who, for a decade straight, has commented on all of my radio interview archive blog entries that first strike capability is madness. Because all you have to do, again, is just stop for a minute and say, well, what's this supposed to look like in practice? In practice, we don't live in a vacuum. In practice, the Russians are real people. And if they believe that the Americans are really obtaining a first strike capability, then what do you expect them to do about it? One, they're going to do what they're already doing. Announce their own plans for a whole new generation of hydrogen bombs. And two, they're going to, you know, get their trigger finger that much itchier. That much more nervous. And, you know, the kinds of things that in the past have Uh, come to very, very close calls, could come to full-scale nuclear war. Uh, And especially because in the new nuke thing, I ought to interview myself about this, I guess. In the new nuke program, a big part of it is um, nuclear cruise missiles delivered by aircraft, which would be a first and which will confuse adversaries as to whether they're being attacked with a nuke or not. So they might respond with a nuke to a conventional attack. Because of stupid idiot Barack Obama and his stupid, evil national security state that he provides over. Meanwhile, all he has to do is give a couple good speeches against it. He could kill the whole thing. But he's evil, so he won't. Hey, Al Scott here. If you've got a band, a business, a cause, or campaign, and you need stickers to help promote, check out TheBumperSticker.com at TheBumperSticker.com. They digitally print with solvent ink, so you get the photo quality results of digital with the strength and durability of old-style screen printing. I'm sure glad I sold the BumperSticker.com to Rick back when. He's made a hell of a great company out of it. and There are thousands of satisfied customers who agree with me too. Let the BumperSticker.com help you get the word out. That's the BumperSticker.com at the BumperSticker.com. Hey, I'll Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. Alright guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton, it's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Libertarian foreign policy. That's the deal. Uh Now the website, man, I don't know, dude. On one computer, I got the chat room pages up. But on the other computer, I can't log in or get to the front page or something. There's a database glitch in the thing. and Sorry about that, I don't know, man. Maybe or maybe you can't get to the website, scotthorton.org. But if you can, that's where I keep all the stuff. Uh, you can still join up the chat room anyway if you want. It's an IRC free node chat room. Hashtag Scott Horton Show. So you don't have to be able to go to scotthorton.org slash chat to get to it. Um, IRC Freenode. Hashtag Scott Horton Show. And that's my handle on Twitter too, Scott Horton Show, if you want to follow me on there. And, yeah, man. Uh Coming up, David Kattenberg. Uh, now, here's, uh, one of the invites I sent out and didn't hear back from. But I'm gonna go ahead and ruin it for you anyway, because I like it. From Shadowproof.com. Which, by the way, uh, guys, you know who Shadowproof is? I think they're like progressive left types, but I don't know much about them. But anyway. Uh, Shadowproof.com. Congress quietly kills ban. Are you ready, everybody? Drum roll. Pay attention, stop talking over the radio show, and listen up now. Congress quietly kills ban on funding neo-Nazis in Ukraine. I know, I was getting your hopes up there for a minute, right? Would they legalize something? Yeah, they legalized arming and training Nazis. Uh, this is... Dan Wright at shadowproof.com. U.S. policymakers have been in a precarious position since backing the coup that overthrew Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych in 2014. Though many within President Barack Obama's administration support a policy of tension with Russia and believe a new Cold War can secure budgets and promote their relevance, very well put, young man. The Ukrainians actually fighting on behalf of the post-coup government in Kiev are a less than reputable sort. In fact, many are outright neo-Nazis or neo-Nazi sympathizers who see their fight as part of a larger struggle for racial purity in Ukraine. And he links there to foreign policy conceding the truth of that at foreignpolicy.com, by the way, there. Again, shadowproof.com. And it's a very well-linked article all the way through, by the way. Though many of the neo-fascist fighters in Ukraine harken back to popular figures in Ukrainian history who allied with the Nazis, few Americans, and even fewer American policymakers typically cast a fond gaze at the ideology or history of the Third Reich. Thus, the dilemma. Give up support for the neo-fascist militias and be seen as weak and standing up to Russia or support the militias, and be seen as getting into bed with murderous Nazis. I know, it's a real tough call, right? Not surprisingly, the first course of action for policymakers was to support the militias and hope no one noticed. This did not go well, as the Associated Press and other media outlets noticed that one of the groups being trained by the U.S. military was the Azov Battalion, which actually uses an emblem from Nazi Germany. Well, not just them, but the right sector. And, of course, Svoboda is formerly the Social Nationalist Party. Isn't that subtle? No, we're not national socialists. We're social nationalists. And, you know... Hail Bandera. Um, and, of course, it wasn't just that the AP noticed. It's that there were, you know, critics all along who were pointing out even before the coup that there were a bunch of Nazis on the street who were part of this thing and using emblems from Nazi Germany and from Nazi Ukraine as well. Even the, uh, but I'm sorry, uh, he continues here. Even the reliably neoconservative Daily Beast started publishing stories wondering if the U.S. was training neo-Nazis, then eventually confirming that, indeed, the U.S. was providing military and financial support to neo-Nazi militants in Ukraine. Now, we all knew that. They said, we're not training their army, we're training the National Guard. Yeah, okay, so we already knew the National Guard meant the Azov Battalion and right sector hitler loving Nazis. The outcry over the U.S.-neo-Nazi alliance in Ukraine led Congressman John Conyers and Ted Yoho to draft an amendment to the House Defense Appropriations Bill to limit arms training and other assistance to the neo-Nazi Ukrainian militia, the Azov Battalion. That was in quotes there. Um, Quote, arms training, etc. End quote at battalion which passed by unanimous vote in the House of Representatives. Ah, but that amendment was stripped out of the final bill, allowing U.S. aid to neo-Nazis in Ukraine to continue. According to The Nation, the Department of Defense were the ones who successfully lobbied Congress to kill the Conyers-Yoho Amendment, and did so on a thoroughly dishonest uh, basis. Uh, And then the quote from... Uh, the nation. The Pentagon's objection to the Conyers-Yoho Amendment rests on the claim that it is redundant because similar legislation known as the Leahy Law already exists that would prevent the funding of Azov. This, as it turns out, is untrue. The Leahy Law covers, and Marjorie Cohn explained this on the show yesterday, the Leahy Law covers only those groups for which, quote, the Secretary of State has credible information that such unit has committed a gross violation of human rights, end quote. Yet, the State Department has never claimed to have any such information about Azoff. Of course not. They're the ones who did the coup in the first place. So, funding to the group cannot be blocked by the Leahy Law. So, um, the author continues here. What is his name again? Sorry. Dan Wright continues. While it is nice to see the Pentagon pretending to care about redundancy... Please carry that view forward to procurement. <laughs> the truth is, if the previous bans had covered the Azov Battalion, the U.S. military would not have been training them in the first place. The reason the Pentagon is playing such a dirty game with Congress on funding the neo-fascist elements in Ukraine is not hard to deduce. Neo-Nazi militias like the Azov Battalion are the most dedicated and fierce killers driven by racial bloodlust and unmoored to civilized thinking or conduct. Azov and their comrades are anxious to get into the fight and spill blood, whereas many other Ukrainians are doing everything they can to avoid the war in the East. What the Obama administration will soon learn, as the government in Kiev knows now, is that the rabid dog you release on your enemy can just as easily bite your own hand. Empowering the neo-fascist militias today may lay the groundwork for another coup tomorrow. And even there, he links to news coverage of the right sector threatening to overthrow the government there. Um In fact, uh Andre Perubi, who is a right sector Nazi actually in the parliament, has said, I overthrew the last government. I'll overthrow this one. Who's going to stop me? So, touche, Mr. Wright. That's Dan Wright at shadowproof.com, a great one. Congress kills the ban on funding Nazis in Ukraine. Hey, i all Scott Horton here for wallstreetwindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop. Which is, by the way, what he's doing right now. Selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at wallstreetwindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. Wallstreetwindow.com Hey i all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MastersamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MastersamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MastersamuraiTech.com. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. ScottHorton.org for the archives, sign up for the podcast feeds and all that stuff. If you can get the damn site to work, but you know what I mean. All right, Uh, our guest today is David Kattenberg. He is a Winnipeg based radio, web broadcaster, and science educator. It says here, and uh, here he's written this kind of hilarious, kind of outrageous, kind of unbelievable article for Mondo Weiss, uh, which I was joking with Phil about it yesterday. He, he was glad I liked the title so much. I about choked and got sick. I was laughing so hard. And Phil took credit for the title, but you get credit for the piece here. Great piece. Um, it's called Dennis Ross Says Clinton was the only president to stamp down anti-israel forces inside the white house i'm sorry i was tried so hard to read that without laughing um david welcome to the show how are you doing
1: hey scott very well thank you
0: good good very happy to have you here and so this is a tale of uh one sunday evening last november as you begin here uh you went and saw a talk given by dennis ross um now many of the listeners will be familiar with dennis ross but let's just make sure uh can you first of all please uh, describe who this guy is why it's important that he came to give a speech in the first place
1: well dennis ross scott is a you know sort of an a, in the world of a, american diplomacy he he's very eminent uh and distinguished uh uh, diplomat and negotiator. He's worked with various administrations uh, in the United States since uh, uh, Jimmy Carter's. He's been in the Pentagon. He's been in the State Department. He's worked uh, out of the White House. And he's, he's the Middle East peace negotiator uh, par excellence. Um, you know, one of the original, very original negotiators in the Madrid and Oslo talks. And he's you know, he was most recently served under Obama, right? Uh, trying to trying to get the the peace process uh, going, and so when he uh, he's he's very well known in this regard, and he kind of has the nickname. Although it's not clear to me that it's this, this has been it was it was probably him that Aaron David Miller, who's another one of these types, was referring to when he coined the term Israel lawyer, because Ross is. I mean, supposedly, America is the arbiter between Israel and the Palestinians, right? But the United States kind of is a friend of Israel. And uh, folks like D- David, like Dennis Ross are, you know, seen as being a friend of Israel. He's a friend of Israel. And so he came to Winnipeg. I thought, I got to hear this guy mm-hmm. and and tr- try to interview him.
0: All right. So, um, well, there's a few different things. Uh, in the speech here, but, uh, you talk about, I guess, uh, you know, most importantly, how he started to describe the current, uh, you know, I guess, pseudo-intifada thing, whatever you call it, that's going on now with the knife attacks. And he said, oh yeah, he had me on the edge of my seat. I couldn't wait for his explanation of what all is going on here. So, what all is going on here, according to Dennis Ross? David?
1: Well, I, you know, I mean, what listeners have to understand is that, of course, he, he had come to Winnipeg to speak to a crowd of you know Jewish folks at the Jewish big Jewish center in Winnipeg, and it's quite a Jewish community here. And the median age must have been like sixty-eight or sixty-nine or seventy. Uh, quite quite a lot of older people. They're very appreciative, and he was kind of he was he was you know pitching to his audience. He was really in his in his kind of. Uh, realm there and he was you know like the, the Paris attacks had just taken place which were awful and so the you know this recent outbreak of violence in Palestine with the knife attacks had kind of perhaps slipped to the back of people's minds but he started to talk about that and um I mean I was really interested in hearing if he was going to talk about the occupation and his slant was that of course well the Palestinians have no one to blame but themselves and the, the most astonishingly, he said that knife attack, like the knife attacks, these attacks on the part of Palestinians using knives or, you know, potato peelers, you know, and so on and so forth, um, were worse, worse in a sense, more brutal, ugly terrorism than what Daesh had committed in Paris, because the Daesh attacks were just blind and kind of indiscriminate. Whereas Palestinians knife attacks, it's it's very intimate, and so it's dreadful, dreadful, it's worse than imaginable. And his explanation was, of course, that they they no one's paying attention to them in, in a nutshell, no no one's paying attention to the Palestinians. no one cares about them, so they're trying to get attention. and it's it's social media, right? It's this canard that it's social media that's driving all of it. Well, and that really um,
0: sounds like kind of a half-truth, to the way he puts that. Is It sounds like the rest of his thought is muted, but he's saying, you know, I, what, they just want a pat on the head, or they want someone to pay attention to their complaints about what their problems are? Oh, uh, I yeah. see. You so know?
1: totally trivializing it. So, like, the uh, bottom line is that he didn't mention the occupation at all. It wasn't uh, 50 years of, of, of belligerent occupation, uh, you know, and the brutality that goes on day in, day in, day out, never gets reported in the media. Uh, the mass media doesn't report on what goes on every day and every night in, in occupied Palestine. But that had no, He didn't mention that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, not at all. I mean, I guess the closest he comes, as you put it in here, is when he says, oh, yeah, well, there are these fake rumors going around that we're going to seize the Temple Mount and all this. And that's what they're fighting yeah. about, are these rumors. But... So I guess yeah, and
1: that's what the media, that's what the mass media, as you're aware, Scott, I mean, that's what the mass media, you know, since late September when this new uprising started, all the media could talk about was this was a religious, a religious thing, right? right? Fueled by fanatics, perhaps, and it had to do with the Temple Mount, but nobody would talk about the occupation. You'd never see the word occupation appearing in the media. And, and thus, thus, you know, uh, you know, Dennis Ross, who is indeed a dear friend of Israel, speaking to a very pro, very Zionist crowd, just laying it on.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm sorry because I don't mean to ask you necessarily to be a psychotherapist or anything like that, but I wonder if you could gauge somehow, qualitatively or quantitatively, or however you like, on a scale of one to a zillion, um, how much kind of uh groupthink is there about like in the room for example of, of the denial of the occupation i mean is it the case that this guy i mean what's what what you quote him as saying to me just sounds like a damn lie right it's when you go to court you have to tell the whole truth because a half truth can be very very misleading right but so i guess i just wonder whether everyone really just kind of nods and agrees with this narrative so much that they really believe it or I mean, come on, how can they escape the word occupation? It's not like they don't know the word in English. And it's not like they don't know that, yeah, Israel won the war back in 67 and hadn't withdrawn since.
1: This is a very good question, Scott. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very foundational question. It's denial. Now, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure, quite sure who your listeners are, but they, I, I'm sure they're aware of the fact that, well, in Winnipeg, I'll talk about Winnipeg, this crowd of folks at the rady Jewish Center, extremely liberal. They're very liberal folks. They're very progressive folks in every way except on Palestine. And as far as pa- Israel goes, they're all very Zionist. They're older. It's an older generation. And they're you're pro-Israel, absolutely, positively, 110% pro-Israel. And they don't, I mean, they're, they're good people. They're progressives. But if you ask them about the Nakba, I mean, if they knew what that what it was, they they deny it. It's mythology. It's, it's Zionist mythology, as it, as entrenched in this kind of an audience as it is in in, in in sort of mainstream kind of middle of the road older kind of community of progressive Jewish people in the United States that Phil Weiss and Mondo Weiss report on. Right? right. It's it's yeah. the Zionist crowd.
0: All right. Well, I'm sorry.
1: I'm They're sorry, progressive.
0: we need a, we need a, uh, to give you time for a longer answer there, but we got to stop and take this break, David. But uh, hang tight right there, and we'll be right back, everybody, with David Kattenberg. He wrote this great piece at Mondoweiss.net. Go read it. Dennis, Ross says Clinton, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Hey, i will Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me, I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer, Jeffrey Tucker, every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF Founder and President Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey, i will Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Talking with David Kattenberg about this piece he wrote for Mondo Weiss, net. Dennis Ross says Clinton was the only president to stamp down anti-Israel forces <laughs> inside the White House. Um So at the break, I'm sorry, uh, we got interrupted at the break, but you were answering about the the level of groupthink and the level of denial and the... The common refrain that, oh, man, just everybody's an anti-Semite and refusal to acknowledge that the reason people are upset is because of the occupation. And 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 then, of course, you know, the the real subtle point is, you know, how much of this is kind of uh, and I guess it doesn't really matter. I I don't know Uh, how much of it is outright lies, how much of it is just denial and and, you know. Who believes what on the issue? I mean, it seems pretty, a pretty blatant truth that the Israelis occupy the West Bank and that probably if you were from the West Bank, you wouldn't like that or something, right? Like, that's not that difficult of an idea to grasp.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, Scott, for, for me, what, what kind of blows my mind more than anything else, somehow, is how somebody like, you know, Um, Dennis Ross, who's an intellectual supposedly, who who is smart, who knows history, uh, he's been there, he's spoken with everybody, right? No one, no one has heard the Palestinian complaints, you know, more often uh, over so many years than, than Dennis Ross. And yet he, he, he says the things he says. And so one asks the question, Is it pure mendaciousness? Like, is it really cynical? Does he really understand, um, but kind of play the game cynically? Or or is he somehow truly, you know, blind to certain ways of thinking? And, you know, Noam Chomsky could go on about this, like the intellectuals and what what drives their thinking. Mm -hmm. And where are they coming from exactly? Like, how can a guy like Ross. He's been there. He's seen it all. How could he be such a... Well, and the thing
0: is, too, is he could just as easily say, I mean, yeah, there's an occupation, but it's not that bad, and whatever, spin, and and be at least somewhat honest of the facts and spin those instead of just completely ignoring the facts of the matter. Well,
1: I would say, you know, the question in my interview with him uh, was... Look, the occupation's illegal. Why should there be negotiations? This is the the big question. Like, why should there be a a peace process or negotiations? Like, everybody says, oh, there there have to be negotiations. Why? The occupation's against the law. The international community should just be telling Israel to get out and supporting it, helping it, making it happen, but saying it's got to end and it's going to end in, you know, six months. Or something like that.
0: And what did he say to that?
1: Oh, well, I, 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 of course, didn't go on at at, at such a length. Well, no, I uh, understand. You know, I said to him, I said to him, why why negotiate? And he said, oh, you know, he just kind of shrugged it off. He said, because, you know, it's, you know, because there there have to be negotiations. I don't know.
0: Yeah. And now, Uh, so... and now, in your interview with him, when you – it's funny the way – I guess we'll skip it. Everybody read the article for the the funny way the interview took place in the first place here. Uh, pretty good thing, but so um, I there guess –
1: You can listen to the SoundCloud, of course. There's a SoundCloud. Oh, cloud. yeah.
0: You know what? I'm sorry. I I never did get around to doing that. I, I meant to do that and even have a couple of clips ready, but I spaced it out. But, uh, yeah, the it. first thing you did was ask him about The Occupation. Uh, and, and when you you said 70 years and he said, huh?
1: Yeah. Well, I said, you know, I said 70 years of dispossession and occupation. So the dispossession began in 1947, 48. (laughs) But yeah, but he said, yeah, he said, it's what do you mean 70 years? So I said, like the Nakba, right? And then he kind of, okay, you know, the Nakba, right? Oh, sure. I wasn't going to follow him up on that because I, I wasn't about to get into a conversation with the NACBO with Dennis Ross. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he denies that in a sense. He really does deny it. He's "Oh, sure there was dispossession, mm-hmm. but it's been a lot worse for mm-hmm. other people.
0: And then as you wrote here, you said, OK, fine. Then since 67, that's still 50 years. And then, Mm -hmm. and then I just love this. This is the part where I think I tweeted it like, Hey, everybody go look at this right now. That the best he can do is say, Oh yeah, compared to living under the Islamic State. Derp, derp, derp. Really? That's the best he's got.
1: Yeah, it's worse than Syria, right? And, and of course, you know, in a conversation that if we had had 30 minutes or, you know, even 20 to go on. I would have said, yeah, well, but there's a, you know, you, you say it's a whole lot worse in Syria, but I'm, but we don't support Syria, where the U.S. isn't giving $5, 6000000000 billion a year to, to Bashar al-Assad and defending Assad at uh, the United Nations. We're doing that with Israel. Israel's our dearest friend. Um, so, you know... It's, it's not something that the United States should be supporting.
0: <laughs> In the chat room, JDA says, at this point, I'd go for a deal where they can have the bank if the U.S. can have D.C. back.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> oh, that'll be the day. Uh, poor Palestinians. So anyway, so, well, okay, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no, I was just going to say so. I, but, you know, talking to this guy, it's it's uh, it's depressing. It's depressing to talk to a person who is intelligent and and understands and has seen it all and has had it all explained to him, but who somehow denies, who denies the truth. Mm -hmm. But this is the essence, maybe this is kind of, I don't know, it's kind of, I don't know, kind of obvious. You know, Mm -hmm. there are all sorts of people like that.
0: Yeah, well, and you even confront him with the fact that Netanyahu has said that Israel will never give up you know, security, however he put it. It's one state, from the river to the sea. And then he says, nuh-uh? I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah,
1: because uh, Netanyahu had just spoken at, where had he been? He had been in the United States, and he had said, you know, reaffirmed, you know, he had repeated the mantra, two states for two people. And, uh, and, and that, then you know, it was like a, a quick burst of it in the news, right? Netanyahu has confirmed that he's prepared to see a two-state solution, but it's nonsense. Yeah, of Netanyahu course. And had, he had
0: told the truth in the election, that I'll be damned if we're going to ever give up Judea and Samaria. I think we can take that to the bank, not his pandering to the U.S.
1: Well, yes, the, the Netanyahu, Netanyahu and the members of his government have continually state that they're under no circumstances will they allow a Palestinian state to be formed. And they've been saying that for years, for years. Netanyahu's been saying that. So, for people like ross and, and everyone else who talk about a negotiated settlement and the two state solution and uh, the peace process it's it's, it's willful willful ignorance
0: mm-hmm. well, and now, well, I want to ask you about the president's thing, but first of all. Um, And I think you kind of confront him with this where he says, oh, come on, Jewish settlements are only two percent of the West Bank. And you say, yeah, but Area C and this is Netanyahu caught on secret tape bragging about how he took advantage of Clinton with Ross's help, I guess, in saying, oh, yeah, we're going to need this little Area C, too. But then it was huge. And don't worry, the Americans are easily moved and all that. That was the context of that secret tape and Netanyahu. And, um, but anyway, so you counter with that, that, hey, that's 60% of the West Bank. And so that gets to what Phil was saying on the show the day before yesterday, which is there's no two state solution ever. The, it, I mean, it is just a done deal. The, the, that 2% and area C and whatever amounts to de facto annexation of the West Bank. And I guess, and they'll never call it that so that they can always pretend that someday, someday, someday there will be a Palestinian state, you know, until whatever, 75 years from now they finish finally colonizing the whole damn thing or something. And, uh, and so what about hmm. that? I mean, that's really Ross's game here is to just he's, – he's doing that pretending. That's his role in this is to, to put well, us off, basically.
1: Is, the simple fact of the matter is that Netanyahu and his government and indeed Israeli society at large – uh, a polling has showed are not really, they're not in favor of, of giving up East Jerusalem. Uh, they're not in favor of removing the settlers. Um, and the Netanyahu government is, is completely, entirely wedded. It's founded, its whole political raison d'etre is establishing greater Israel, you know, building, building up Israel and taking it all. It's theirs. The land belongs to them. And there are all these people saying it. It's astonishing, right? You know, Danny Dannon at the United Nations, they're all saying it. And yet people like Dennis Ross, and of course, you know, uh, the Barack Obama, and, uh, and Samantha Power, and all the rest of them, brilliant people, brilliant intelligence, and, and in fact, decent people, people, people of conscience in many ways, certainly within the domestic realm in the United States, but as far as Israel goes, they are, they're, they're willful deniers.
0: Yeah. All right. And, well, and, and, and I'm sorry, uh, we got to go out to this break, but I want to just record one last question with you here about sure. the, uh, what he said about the presidents. And I'll urge everybody to go read this article. It's really great. Um, but, uh, about the presidents, I mean, he really seemed to say that Bill Clinton, the one who had empowered him to, pull off this same scam right of the the pseudo 2 state solution that never quite comes to fruition that he's the only president who ever really did right by israel really meant well uh when it came to israel and the proof of that was that clinton hired ross to be israel's lawyer and every other president has just been you know all but an enemy of the poor little plucky israelis huh
1: yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, we haven't talked about this, but I think that all this, all this historical analysis about which presidents differed in terms of policy in this way or that way, and this is the strategy, and this is where they were coming from, and what they were thinking, and it's, I think mean, the audience kind of, he he lost his audience, or the, the audience lost Ross, because it's just, it's too, it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's voodoo, right? It's kind of historical voodoo, and, and um through the looking glass and it's it's absurd it's all and it's all pseudo intellectual pseudo analytical pseudo quasi historiographical and it's nonsense i think largely i think you know no chomsky could go to town on on this kind of analysis it's perfectly mundane and devoid of d- devoid of any content you know it's like somebody getting up there and talking astrology
0: yeah well, yeah, and of course, I mean, and his definitions as he cites, I don't want to ruin the whole article for everybody, but he basically cites the slightest little quibbles, right? George W. Bush, who, you know, yeah, I guess yeah. at a couple of points lifted his pinky finger on one hand to slightly attempt to restrain Israel and then not, after all. That amounts to, you know, vicious anti-Semitism, I guess, or something.
1: Yeah, and each, each and every president, there has not been a president since the beginning, I mean, since you know, modern times, who hasn't been completely wedded to the notion of American supremacy in the world and the dictates of power and the rest of them? So all these characters, however one might want to spin their particular point of view vis-a-vis Israel and the Palestinians, they've all seen Israel as as a as a vital ally and you know a blood brother of the United States.
0: Yeah, especially so. since the '60s and '70s, right where.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, post-war, immediately post-war, no one knew, of course, how things were going to evolve. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. All right. Well, listen, man, it's uh, really been great to have you on the show, David. Uh Really great article. And it really, as you put it, it's really a through-the-looking-glass kind of experience. I think people will have a little private riot as they read this thing. Dennis Ross says Clinton was only pre- was the only president to stamp down anti-Israel forces inside the White House. That's the headline at mondowise.net. Thanks very much, David. Uh, thank you, Scott. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still. If you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than thirty-five years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at one-eight 874 seven four-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Alright y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton, it's my show, the Scott Horton Show. I gotta fix this thing, man. I keep putting off fixing it. I know what I gotta do to and I just gotta fix it. Right, and then it'll be fixed. Anyway, uh, yeah, so it's my show, man. That was uh, David Kattenberg. I do hope you'll go and read his piece there at Mondawise.net. It's real good. All right, so I talked about that, and I talked about that. And so next up is Iraqi Kurds agree to hold referendum on secession. All right, so step one, panic. Step two, don't panic. Mm, I'm not sure whether to panic or not, I guess. That's step three. Um, I don't know. This could be a real problematic problem, kids. But on the other hand, eh, I've heard this one before a lot of times. And what tends to happen is that the Americans say to the Kurds, No, please don't. And then the Kurds go, Okay, okay, give us some guns and some money and some... Let us get away with some other things at your expense and etc. And then they don't. Ah, uh, They kick the can down the road some more. But right now... You know, the the status quo is eh, basically the 1992 status quo. They are an autonomous, independent state there in northern Kurdistan, but they don't call themselves that. They call themselves part of Iraq, nominally under the authority of the Baghdad central government. Now, I'm not for central statism or whatever, but these people ain't adopting anarcho-capitalism in the place of it. Okay, what we're talking about is... Factions fighting over territorial monopolies of power. And it's ugly. And they don't have anything to fight about. Why would the Iraqi Kurds, the leaders, their political leaders, pick a fight with Baghdad when they have no reason to fight and they severely have a common enemy in the Islamic State? That was very poor grammar, but still, whatever. You know what the hell I'm trying to say when I'm attempting to say it. And anyway... Uh, Point is, it's been said by the Shia-stan government, from Baghdad down to Kuwait there, George W. Bush-stan, that if the Kurds do declare independence, that they will go to war against them. Now, maybe that's a bunch of tough talk, and maybe the Iraqi army is busy, but still it ain't good. Or it could be bad. The other thing is Kirkuk. Kirkuk is claimed by the Kurds, but it's not really up in Kurdistan in the mountains where they've been hiding for a few thousand years up there from all of the rest of their surrounding enemies. It's out there in the desert. And it's been... It's changed hands uh, from rule and from, you know, majority population from Kurd to Arab to Kurd to Arab and back and forth again for a long, long time. And... uh you know, predating Saddam Hussein, even this has been going on and the Kurds claim it now. But as Mitchell Prother explained on the show back, I guess a year and a half ago, they don't have that much ability to defend it. Maybe they have some, but it's questionable compared to their ability to defend Irbil, uh in the mountains. But um anyway, or on the other side of the mountains or whatever, I've never been to Erbil. I don't know, but. Uh, So, and this is a battle that's going on in Kirkuk right now between Kurds and Arabs, whether Sunni or Shia. And uh, so that's a major sticking point. But, of course, you know, the biggest problem, uh, potential problem, is that if Kurdistan declares independence and an independent state there in northern Iraq, then that changes the whole dynamic for Turkish Kurdistan, for Syrian Kurdistan. For Iranian Kurdistan, for Armenian and Azerbaijani Kurdistan. There's, Kurdistan is a region. It's never been a state, or I don't know, at least not in any recent time. It was under the Ottomans before it was under the Europeans, and under the Americans, and under the Baathists, and under the whoever's is. And so, now the thing of it is that, um, all the political factions in the various divided Kurdistan's are not in line with each other necessarily. The PKK exists in Iraq, but they're not in charge. They kind of uh are way off in the mountains in the very far north, and are separate. Maybe they're protected. I don't know, but they're separate from the Barzani or Talibani clans, and they're, you know, rule over the place. And so then the Syrian YPG. And uh the uh, Turkish PKK, these groups don't necessarily see eye to eye with the Iraqi Kurds. It may be uh, it may be impossible or it may be very difficult for them to decide you know that they would rather join forces and go to war against all their common enemies together in their new Kurdish state. I mean the fact of the matter is they're landlocked, and if they try to declare independence, and I'm talking the region wide now, they're really picking a fight with five powers who are going to be really pissed off about losing a bunch of territory to a new uh, independent state. And I'm not saying that, you know, the Turkish government has the right to rule anyone at all, really. I'm an anarchist. But I'm just talking about, you know, I'm not talking about the moral principle of the thing. I'm just talking about in the real world where we're living, what could be the possible consequences of this. They could be really ugly. And, um... I don't know if they're going to go through with it or not. They talked this way back in 2014 after Mosul fell and the caliphate was declared and Obama sent his guys over there to say, no man, don't, please don't declare independence from Baghdad now. It'll ruin everything. Now, when this vote is supposed to take place, I guess I don't know. It could be a real problem. Let me see here. I'm paging down in the Bloomberg piece. What they don't say? Great news article, dude. Great news coverage, Scott. Let's see. Here's Jason's story. Does it say there? Uh, nothing about the date. Anyway, let's hope they keep kicking that can down the road. That uh, could be a real problem. And then, by the way, man, speaking of Iraq, did you see this at antiwar.com? Suicide bomber stage mass attack, 200 killed. And that's just one part of her daily rundown of the slaughter in Iraq. Jesus, look at this. Antiwar.com slash updates. That's Margaret Griffiths keeps track. And just, I mean, just look at the suicide bombers killed these wounded those. Seven more suicide bombers here. 18 bodies found in a mass grave. Civilian killed. A number more wounded in a drive by. Lawyer executed. Um, security forces killed 35 in Husaba, wherever the hell that is. Another 35 in Tharathar. Peshmerga forces in Sinjar killed 26. Anyway, and it keeps going. And, you know, that's going on. In fact, look at the, the archive of the days past. 162 killed, 167 killed, 84 killed, 259 killed, 48 killed. Day by day by day. These aren't weekly totals. These are daily totals from the violence in Iraq War Three. Man, oh man. All right. Well, good. We're almost out of time for this segment, so I won't start on Libya yet. Until the other end of it. Oh, man. Uh, Anyway, what's the clock? All right, yeah, so I'm Scott. This is my show, Scott Horton Show. I'm on the Liberty Radio Network. I know, I sound bored, don't I? I've been doing this a long time. It's just the same damn thing every day, and I guess I am kind of burnt out. But, you know, government's killing people. i got to explain what's going on to people if I can, you know. That's the deal. ScottHorton.org is the site where I keep all the archives and uh, let this song play. What is it? Huh, it's the Beasties. I'm gonna let the Beasties, uh, remix a Led Zeppelin drumbeat or something, whatever the hell this is for a minute. And then a bunch of horrifyingly terrible commercials are gonna play. And then we'll be back to talk about, uh, Libya and Yemen. And Syria. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism vs. Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism vs. Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, i am Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, I'm Scott. Yeah, I told you I'd be back after the break, man. Didn't you believe me? So, yeah, this is my show, Scott Horton Show, and, you uh, yeah, anti-government extremism is basically the name of the game here. And I hate the wars the most. That seems to be, I guess, uh, what you call it? Yeah, economics ain't it. My comparative advantage in the market. I'm good at explaining what's wrong with the wars, mostly. Compared to others, anyway. Oh, some others. Not others. Others. But anyway, here's what's important that um, I feel like blabbing about. It's not important, but I still feel like blabbing about it. I'm going to talk about more wars in a second. But right now, I'm going to talk about politics. I'm going to talk about Scott Adams. I'm interested in this guy, Scott Adams. What's funny is, if you heard my... uh interview of him. You probably thought like me, don't about his statements about the wars and whatever. We got off track. Is my fault. The the interview got off track a little bit there. Um, he says, he makes it very clear, Scott Adams, this is the author of the Dilbert cartoon, which you're all familiar with. I don't know if you read it or not. Anyway. Um he uh he says here, I'm not a Trump fan. He says someone would have to be a mix of Trump and Sanders and Bloomberg to be his preferred candidate. He previously had said, I think anyone who's currently running for president would be a fine president. Sure. So, that's his political point of view. Is that, you know, yeah, you're all a bunch of great guys and we could use a good manager of our system and I bet you could do it and... Right on, man, and it doesn't seem very ideological, right? Seems like, yeah, he's furrow, he, he's afraid of the terrorists and he wants a welfare state and the more or less status quo seems more or less pretty comfortable to him. So um, these aren't accusations. You know, it's just a description. That's the point of view I believe he seems to be coming from. Very centrist, very middle-of-the-road, very take-the-status-quo-for-granted kind of a way of looking at politics, I think. Um. And so, uh, that being said, it's important to say that because it seems like, oh, he's so in the tank for Trump or something like that. But that's not what's going on here. Um, he's just analyzing the situation. And he has, as you heard him say on the show, and if you've read his blog, he has what he calls the master persuader filter, where he says, you guys look at politics however you want. But from, but this analysis is based on uh, looking specifically at Trump, but I guess the rest of them too, from how, really how good they are at being a salesman. You know, that part of it. And, uh, the first thing he said to me when I interviewed him was, I'm a trained hypnotist and manipulator, and so I know this stuff. As he says here, I know what I'm talking about because I can do all this stuff too. I'm just not nearly as good at it as Trump is. But everything that he says, and as he explains in this post, everything that he says is, you know, textbook stuff. Literally, textbook stuff. This is how you manipulate people. This is what you do to them. And it works real well. And as he explained on the show, too, Trump explains, this is how I manipulate you. And nobody minds. He's perfectly above board about it. And it works every time. And, um... So he looks at everything. Anyway, it's very interesting to see. And so one of the things that he says here is he, he's talking about, um you know, the whole pseudo scandal over whether Cruz was born in Canada. Well, I don't know. The Constitution says what it says. And I read a thing in The Washington Post where a lawyer said, man, you know, I mean, it does say what it says. And the common law had always said at the time, which was the understanding that the Constitution was based on, that it meant born there. Man, I guess they could have used clearer language, but he was not, you know. The deal with with Obama was he was born in Hawaii, not Kenya. If he'd been born in Kenya, yeah, it would have been a problem. Only to the degree that the Constitution is the law, which, hardy-har-har-har, har, har, it's actually not. They can do whatever they want, so there's that. But anyway... He's taking it for granted here. Sorry for the aside there. But he's taking it for granted here that, man, you know, the Trump and it doesn't even matter. Right. He's he's what he's saying is it doesn't matter whether it's a real scandal or not. What he's saying is, look at how Trump is so successful at manipulating this. He says, um, oh, well, first, I want to do the because see, I just should have just read the damn thing. In his book, Influence, by Cialdini, we learn that any sentence that contains the word because will influence people no matter what follows that word. Hypnotists already knew that. There's the sort of rule you don't believe. That's the sort of rule you don't believe until you see it in action. Here's an example. Don't vote for Ted Cruz because he's Canadian. You can also remove the word because and simply imply it. If you vote for Ted Cruz, he might end up tangled in lawsuits regarding his Canadian birth. Keep in mind that in the context of a close political race, you only have to influence 10% of the people to win. And 10% of the public will believe anything. You just need to give them a because. Trump cleverly did that with the Canadian gambit. But that wasn't the end of Trump's technique. It goes a lot deeper. Trump framed Cruz's Canadian birth as a, quote, risk and not a fact. That's a high ground maneuver. And in my experience, this is Scott Adams writing again here, in my experience, that move wins every time you can argue in the weeds about presidential eligibility Or you can go to the high ground and acknowledge that the birther question will dog cruise like it dogged Obama. The risk part sounds true to everyone. And humans are wired to see the avoidance of risk as more compelling than running towards something good. As I taught you in prior posts, Scott Adams writes, Identity beats analogy. Analogy beats reason. And reason only beats dumb arguments about definitions. Trump hit all four dimensions with his Canadian gambit. See, I hate learning truth like this. It just kills me. Identity always beats analogy. Analogy beats reason. And reason only beats dumb arguments about definitions. Identity, American, analogy, similar to Obama's birther situation, reason, risk is a fair concern on any topic, but it's still taking the, what he calls the high ground, but the manipulative uh, spin on reason there, if you even call it that, and then definition, what is the definition of an American, so it covers every every part of his base here. He says, another dimension of Trump's Canadian gambit is that it acts as a reveal to soften Trump's biggest problem, namely the speculation about his sanity and motives. The reveal is that Trump did the Canadian gambit with a wink and a grin. Most of us recognize the Canadian gambit as a campaign technique and not insanity. So then he goes on to explain how, by letting most of us in on the joke... It normalizes him while it still is effective at manipulating the 10% of the rubes who will believe anything. It's really brilliant analysis. I I hope you'll read it. It's at blog.dilbert.com. Hey, i I'll Scott Horton here. Are you a libertarian and or peacenik? Live in North America? If you want, you can hire me to come and give a speech to your group. I'm good on the terror war and intervention, civil liberty stuff, blaming Woodrow Wilson for everything bad in the world, Iran, central banking, political realignment, and, well, you know, everything. I can teach markets to liberals and peace to the right. Just watch me. Check out scotthorton.org slash speeches for some examples and email me, scott at scotthorton.org for more information. See you there. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm me, Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Hey, I appreciate you guys being listeners to the show. I especially appreciate those of you who are supporters of the show. Uh I would gladly take your money, especially if you would like to exchange it for advertising on the show. I will sell you ads. I will give you a great deal. You can help promote your business or your group or something, whatever you're doing. Your event. I got a new ad. It's not kicked in quite yet, but uh, there's a new ad that will be debuting soon, um, which is about an event coming up. I won't tell you about it yet because it's not possible to register for it yet because they don't have their website quite together at this point. But as soon as they do, then, uh, that'll be going on. So that's good. Got bringing one new one on. But, uh, I need you too. If you want to advertise on the show, uh, I have unbelievably low prices. It's, uh, the going out of business sale here at the Scott Horton show. Uh, yeah. Uh, LRN is nice, but there ain't no salary to be on LRN. Uh so I need you guys if you want to advertise. Also if you just like give the money away, uh then I'll do that uh for you. Also if you like the kind of kickbacks that you get when you donate to things like radio shows, like for example, uh, free audiobooks and free actual books and uh commodity disks made out of 99.999% fine silver. How come they don't say 100%? What the hell else is in there? They're counting the tarnish on the outside? Or there's a piece of tungsten in there that they just can't quite scoop out? Or what the hell is that anyway? But anyway, if you want a, a silver coin uh, or any of the wonderful uh, kickbacks that are available if you donate to the show, uh, including you could possibly get a lifetime, well not possibly, you could get a lifetime subscription to Listen and Think audiobooks. Libertarian Audiobooks, uh, if you donate to the show. Uh, it's all there. All the information you need at scotthorton.org slash donate. Unfortunately, I'm not certain that scotthorton.org slash donate works at all right now. Let me see here. I know, man. I know. I know. You guys hate it. I hate it. Everybody hates it. It's a big problem. And no, the damn site is broken. Again, still more. But anyway, yeah, at some point later on. And also, I'll mention, uh, Patreon.com. At Patreon.com, you can sign up to donate per interview, you know, two bits or whatever, a dime or a dollar or whatever you think is right per interview. You can sign up to do that at Patreon.com. You can use uh, bitcoins. You can donate bitcoins. I've got those. Uh, i got the address there for that at uh, scotthorne.org slash donate as well. Um and, uh, Google Wallet. If you hate PayPal, a lot of people hate PayPal. You can use Google Wallet. So there's all that good stuff too. You know, in case you're interested in, uh, making sure that you still have a radio show to listen to. All right, good. Well, I, there are others. I just mean the one that you apparently prefer for this time slot. Well, that's if, for you live guys. And the rest of you, whatever. You know what I mean. Okay, so, um, as we talked about with Daniel Larrison on the show yesterday, uh Libya's recognized parliament rec- rejects UN-backed unity government. And this whole thing is just um well, it's just a complete disaster. And you got uh two different governments in uh two different capitals. And here the UN, I don't know how they bit off that much more that they could chew in the first place, but, uh, they're trying to push, do they even have, the article I don't think even makes it clear whether the, you know, jihadist government in, uh, Tripoli was even in favor of this at all or what. They hadn't even proposed it to them yet. But anyway, there is nothing like a government. There's really, the state of Libya doesn't exist anymore, and it probably won't for a very long time. In fact, the thing wasn't even created until after World War II. Not even World War One, but after World War II. Before that, it was the kingdom of Tripoli and Syrinthia Cir- or some I, I don't know how to say it, man. I especially don't even have it in front of me right now. And then there was a third province in the south that was basically an autonomous area as well. And uh, it was only unified by the American Empire, I guess the British and the American Empire, or the French and the American Empire, Uh, after World War II. And then um, I guess they had a a sock puppet king who was quickly overthrown. I forgot how many steps, how many coups it was before Gaddafi came to power, but representing socialism and nationalism and all that stuff of that era. Uh, But anyway... So now that uh, America killed Gaddafi and uh, helped Al-Qaeda overthrow his government, Al-Qaeda and the uh, Islamic Maghreb and Ansar al-Sharia and the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, and now the Islamic State have free run of the place. And you've got, you know, whoever their prime minister is, is the mayor of Tobruk, whatever the hell it's called. He's not the government of anything. They aren't the government of anything. And so... The problem is, is that people are starting to pay attention to this. You know, I used to tell you that, um, uh, man, it's terrible the way we can just destroy a country and our media doesn't even say another word about it again. And then I catch myself and say, actually, that's good. Because as soon as they start complaining about what a wreck it is, that'll just be the start of the next war. And of course, here we are. And nobody wants to say, damn, Hillary Clinton really screwed up because look at the Islamic State in Tripoli. You're really telling me that's preferable to Gaddafi who made a deal with George W. Bush? That's really preferable? You say nobody's calling her out, but they're saying, okay, it's bad now. So what do we do? So the Pentagon's going to start a whole new bombing run. Uh, and I mean, I guess there's probably already special forces have been run out of there before and it won't be long before they're back. But, um, Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com, Pentagon, U.S. seeks worthy partners for Libya war. Wait a minute, didn't we just read a couple of weeks ago that there were French special forces on the ground in Libya that were coming to train up somebody or something? That probably included Americans too. And I'm a bit hazy on where I read that, honestly. I'm pretty damn sure, though. Eh, Maybe someone in the chat room will help me out. Anyway, Pentagon, uh, U.S. seeks worthy partners for Libya war. U.S. troops making the rounds in Libya trying to find allies. Pentagon Press Secretary Peter Cook confirmed to reporters today there is a small presence of U.S. ground troops in Libya. Oh, there you go. I guess I could have read the first sentence of the thing before I started talking about it trying to establish contact with various militias and other factions to get a better sense of who the players are and who might be worthy of U.S. support. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Joe Dunford confirmed late last week that the U.S. is planning to attack ISIS in Libya and intends to announce a formal decision to that effect in the next few weeks. But the conspicuous lack of allies on the ground has raised doubts about how the U.S. would try to copy the model of their Iraq and Libya and Syria wars onto Libya. The U.S. has launched some airstrikes against targets inside Libya, though General Dunford insisted he wanted the U.S. to do more, amounting all told to, quote, decisive military action against ISIS, who has a presence on Libya's central coast. Despite Cook's suggestion that the U.S. is vetting groups to find someone worthy, in all likelihood the bigger challenge is going to be to find somebody halfway credible that might be willing to work with the U.S. In Libya, most factions are very local, and the few with nationwide ambitions don't have a great track record of getting things done. Yeah, except when it's, you know, overthrowing a stable state in favor of chaos. We can find enough Bin Ladenites to do our dirty work then, no problem, but put it back together again? Hey, i Al, Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, you guys. Welcome back. I guess, you know what I should do? I should just uh, have Ian redo that one where it doesn't fade out at all. We'll just let that one play for the full 30 seconds every time. Because I like it. But right at the part where they're yelling, it gets really quiet and... It just, it ain't sound right, man, you know? Um, but yeah, anyway, man, so uh, it's my show, Scott Horton Show. And I'm not sure how to waste the last 10 minutes of your time paying attention to me here today. Um, but it seems like, I guess, I've been referring to this all week long and I haven't really got much into it. I might as well tell you about the New York Times. Admission and confirmation last weekend about American and Saudi support for the bin Ladenites in Syria. I know you already know this, but what's unique about it is that it's eh, the fourth or fifth time, I guess, that the New York Times has admitted as much. And it's got some new details in it. And so maybe you just don't read news articles, but you listen to the show. I guess I'll tell you what it says. It's uh, uh, Mazzetti and Apuzo in the New York Times. And the date is the 24th. When President Obama secretly authorized the Central Intelligence Agency to begin arming Syria's embattled rebels in 2013, the spy agency knew it would have a willing partner to help pay for the covert operation. It was the same partner the CIA had relied on for decades for money and discretion in far-off conflicts, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Since then, CIA and its Saudi counterpart have maintained an unusual arrangement No, a usual arrangement for the rebel training mission, which the Americans have codenamed Timber Sycamore. Under the deal, current and former administration officials said Saudis contribute both weapons and large sums of money, and then the CIA takes the lead in training the rebels on AK-47s and tow missiles. The support for the Syrian rebels is only the latest chapter in the decades-long relationship between the spy services of Saudi and the U.S., an alliance that has endured through the Iran-Contra scandal, support for the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan, and proxy fights in Africa. Sometimes, as in Syria, the two countries have worked in concert. In others, Saudi Arabia has simply written checks underwriting American covert activities. Of course, they leave out... Saudi support for the Sunni insurgency against the U.S. and Iranian forces in Iraq War II. Remember that? (laughs) Our bosom buddies. The joint arming and training program, which other Middle East nations contribute money to, continues as America's relations with Saudi Arabia and the kingdom's place in the region are in flux. The old ties of cheap oil and geopolitics, that have long bound the countries together, have loosened America's dependence on foreign oil declines. As America's... See, it was me, not them. As America's dependence on foreign oil declines, and the administration tiptoes toward reproachment with Iran. Yet, uh, I need to get to the good part here, man. I'm sorry. Well, so they bring up the the, uh, human rights abuses, the beheadings, and how that's bad public relations, and then, yeah... Although the Saudis have been public about their help arming rebel groups in Syria, the extent of their partnership with the CIA's covert action campaign and their direct financial support had not been disclosed. Details were pieced together in interviews. I don't know that that's really true, but anyway, uh, details were pieced together in interviews with a half dozen current and former American officials and sources from several Persian Gulf countries. From the moment the CIA was start, uh, CIA operation was started, Saudi money supported it. "Quote: They un- the they understand that they have to have us, and we understand that we have to have them," said Mike Rogers, former Republican congressman from Michigan from the House Intelligence Committee. American officials. Uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, man. I really should have gone through this thing with the highlighter. There's so much nothing in this damned article. I had not real. I guess because I, I just skimmed through it the first time, and focused on the good stuff. <laughs> It's a little bit harder to do live. How many wasted words is that? A thousand so far? Christ's sake. Um, American officials have not disclosed the amount of the Saudi contribution, which is by far the largest from another nation to the program to arm the rebels against Assad's military. But estimates have put the total cost of the arming and training effort at several billion dollars. The White House has embraced the covert financing from Saudi Arabia and from Qatar, Jordan, and Turkey at a time when Obama has pushed Gulf nations to take greater responsibility. Which is a funny way of saying to push the Saudi side of the regional civil war going on. Spokesman for both the CIA and the Saudi embassy, to comment, uh, declined. Um... When Obama signed off on arming the rebels in the spring of 2013, they mean in the fall of 2011, if not sooner. It was partly to try to gain control of the apparent free-for-all in the region. The Qataris and Saudis have been funneling weapons into Syria for more than a year. The Qataris had even smuggled in shipments of Chinese-made FN-6 shoulder-fired missiles over the border from Turkey. The Saudi efforts were led by Prince Bandar, who directed the Saudis to, uh, Saudi spies to buy thousands of AKs and millions of rounds of ammunition in Eastern Europe for the Syrian rebels? The CIA helped arrange some of the arm purchases for the Saudis, including a large deal in Croatia in 2012. They should give credit to the original reporting there, which actually I think is that bastard Higgins, but that was pretty much how he got his start was saying, Oh, look at these Croatian firearms. The CIA must have brought them in. By the summer of 2012, a freewheeling a feel had taken a hold along Turkey's border with Syria as the Gulf nations funneled cash and weapons to rebel groups. Even some that American officials were concerned had ties to radical groups like Al-Qaeda. <clears throat> Even some that American officials were concerned had ties to radical groups like Al-Qaeda. The CIA was mostly on the sidelines during this period, (laughs) authorizing, authorized by the White House under Timber Sycamore training program to deliver, I'm reading the New York Times here, bear with me for Christ's sake, to deliver non-lethal aid to the rebels, but not weapons. In late 2012, according to two former senior American officials, David Petraeus, then director of the CIA, delivered a stern lecture to intelligence officials uh, in the Gulf and chastise them for sending arms to Syria without coordinating with the CIA and Jordan and Turkey. Yeah, right. This is the same guy who's in the Daily Beast on a very approved story two months ago saying outright that America should start backing al-Qaeda in Syria against the Islamic State. Spare me. Sorry, I should have spared you guys. But anyway... I'm going to keep not sparing you here. New York Times, I just want you to read it, really, man. I don't know. You're probably... That's what you're saying, right? You're saying, Scott Horton has convinced me that I should turn off the radio and just go read the damn article myself, right? Or maybe I should use some of that master persuader stuff. Like, uh, because you will understand the article better if you read it instead of listen to me stumble through it, you should... Go to freaking Google News and type in uh, U.S., Saudi, Syrian rebels, NY Times, and then find it. Because that's what everybody's doing. It's a world historical event that everybody's reading this article, and you too can participate in that. Along with us all. Does that make you feel good? (laughs) How about, no one will like you if you don't read this article. No one will want to give you a kiss or (laughs) be your good friend. There, now have I gotten through to you? Yeah, tow missiles. CIA giving tow missiles and guns to Osama. Okay, Osama's dead. All of Osama's many, many, many Syrian clones. The Qataris have also helped finance the training and allowed a Qatari base to be used as an additional training location. But American officials said the Saudis are by far the um, largest contributor. Oh, you know what? The the thing I skipped here is where they admit that Obama gave his approval a couple of months later and said, OK, go ahead and give them guns. So I don't know if there was really ever a restriction on that at all. We I have the Ben Swan clip where Ben Swan asked him. In the spring of 2012, you're killing al-Qaeda in Pakistan and Yemen, but you're fighting for him in Syria. What gives? And he's blurted a bunch of garbage, basically. I share that concern. Uh, and so uh, what we've done is to say we will provide non-lethal assistance to Syrian opposition leadership that are committed to a political transition, committed to... So, and then he goes, oh, but no, you're right, there are bad guys there. I guess it's possible that at one point he had ordered some kind of limitation, but uh, hardly made a difference when the whole operation was already on. And as they're reporting here, the guns and the money were coming from the Saudis anyway. It's like a bunch of terrorists need training how to fight. Anyway, I'm sorry, because in the second half of the article, they really get more into... Uh, Al-Qaeda's relationship and all of that, so just fucking go read it.